Hello and welcome to Calling All Cars from otrgold.com. This episode will begin after a brief message from our sponsors.
out of a city has settled into the peaceful quiet of a slumbering community. Inside a large and apparently deserted barn on Overland Avenue, just outside the city proper, the figure of a man can be seen moving about in the dim light cast from one green-shaded electric light bulb. All about him, huge tanks cast eerie shadows give forth a strange odor. Pausing for an instant before one of these, the man reaches into his pocket, extracts the cigarette, reaches again, returns with a match. For a moment, he stands looking about. Then with a quick gesture, strikes the match on the nearby tank. His cigarette lit. Another quick gesture sends the smoldering match sailing across the room to land in a maze of winding copper pipes where it lies fluttering feebly, slowly dying out. Then suddenly it comes to life again with renewed vigor. Seems to gain strength. It's nice a thin trickle of liquid that runs from a leak in one of the grotesque-looking tanks. Deliberately, a thin trail of flame licks a path across the floor. Greedily devours the fuel before it. Heads directly for the base of the tank. And as it reaches a groping finger of flame up to the source of its food, the man turns, sees it, makes one desperate lunge. Bare hands outstretched as though to smother it. But as his sheer crazed eyes watch, the flame reaches its destination. Lingers a brief split second. Then... Miles around, hearing the ground shaking explosion rush from their homes, find the sky tinged with red as huge flames shoot hundreds of feet into the air above all the remains of the old barn. And in the fire station, an alarm bell informs Fire Chief Frank Wilson of the explosion, galvanizes a sudden action every available piece of fire equipment. Lynch and his companions. 
companion managed to reach the open air as the entire section of barn they were decked in collapses into a shambles of burning wood. And once clear, a flashlight reveals the body to be so badly burned that there is apparently no single clue as to its identity. I told you we were wasting our time in there. How you going to find out who this fellow was when there's nothing left of him? Well, frankly, I don't know. Hold that flash here while I look him over. Okay. Yeah. No chance of anybody recognizing by his face, that's certain. No clothing left. Hey, bring that flash down here a little closer, will you? Yeah, yeah that's got it. What's up? Huh. Looks like a tattoo mark here on the back of his arm. You see here where it isn't burnt? Sure, what does it say? Manila. P.I. 1919. <laughs> That's a great hat. That isn't nothing at all. Maybe. Hello, Lynch. What's going on here? Oh, hello, Cecil. A little still blew up. Made ashes out of this bird. Yeah? I just got in on the train in time to hear the excitement. Go about here as fast as I could. Well, I've been trying to get an identification on him, but so far, the only thing I've got is this tattoo mark. Manila P.I. 1919. Probably an ex-sailor, a soldier. What's the reason for wanting an identification so badly? Mainly the fact that I'd like to get a line on the bunch who ran this deal. I've been trying to find it for months. Now that I have, the only person who might be able to tell me anything is Wendell Chris. Well, might as well call the wagon and take him into the morgue. Not much we can do out here to let fires over. Yeah. If Wilson doesn't get it under control soon, there's not going to be enough left of it to bother looking through. Oh, well, come on. Let's phone for the wagon. I'm getting tired of this noise. Several hours, Chief Wilson directs his department in an attempt to extinguish the alcohol dead blaze. And finally, as the first rays of the morning sun announce a new day, the last flame gives way in its stubborn battle and subsides into a smoldering ruin. And at the morgue, Captain Lynch and Captain Cecil Crusell, head of the motorcycle division, mull over the burned body and make another vain attempt to find some bit of identification. Well, this spot on his back looks as though there'd been more tattooing, then. Yeah, but what does it say? That I couldn't tell you. That's the trouble. That and the one bit of tattooing on his arm, which does us practically no good. There's absolutely nothing to go on. How about fingerprints? wonder if we could get anything there. And those fingers? <laughs> Not a thing. Nothing left to print with. Well, that's kind of hopeless. Listen, Cecil, I've got an idea. How about us calling up Sheriff Biscuit in Los Angeles and seeing if he can help us? They've got a lot of new fingerprints and identification equipment on there. Might have something new. Mm, can't hurt any. The think we're stopped cold at this end. That's just what I'm going to do. Give me that phone. Just in response to Lynch's call, Captain Nuremberg of the Identification Bureau drives to Culver City, pulls up in front of the morgue, and once inside, he meets Lynch and she fell. Ah. Not much to go on, is there? Not much. Now, let me see these fingers. Mm-hmm. No chance of a print. Yeah, that's what we figured. There's one small chance, though, that we can try. Something I've never done before. Mm-hmm. What's that? Attempt to restore the skin of the fingers to normal by soaking them in alcohol and powdering them. Think it might work? <laughs> I can't say definitely. I know that it's just possible. But it will be experimental completely. Well, for me, I say let's try it. If it works, we're ahead. If it doesn't, what are we lost? Accordingly, with all arrangements made, Nuremberg returns to the laboratory to make preparations for the experiment. While Cicel, accompanied by police judge Randall, drives to the burn track, begins an investigation. Well, looks like this is where someone lives. Yeah, that old iron bed there. 
Probably a sort of general hangout and living quarters for that poor fellow that got burned and the rest of the gang. What's all this junk over here? I don't know. Looks like what is left is a chest of drawers or something. Well, the only thing that didn't burn. Yeah. Uh, you think you'll get anywhere with that fingerprint idea, Cecil? Oh, I don't know, Judge. A chance. Nick is pretty enthusiastic over it. Uh, more power to him. Without the slimmest lead I've ever heard of. Uh-huh. Hello, what's this? You find something? I don't know. Looks like an old watch. Yeah. Here it is. Hmm. Anything in it? Oh, some papers. Let me see. It's an old speed ticket. Only wait a minute. It's not so old. Made out on December 8th. Yes. That's the day before yesterday. Yeah. Let's see if I can make out the name on it. Harry A. H. Howard. Harry A. Howard. Well, you remember that name, don't you, Judge? Yeah. Hey, wasn't he the fellow we had up for bootlegging a couple of times? Right. Lynch and I have been trying to connect him with some big time skill for a long time. And it looks like we were right. Hmm, let's see what we got here. Nearby orders to appear in Harrisburg. Yeah, and here's the officer's name we gave it. Say, I've got an idea that this little ticket is going to make a lot of difference in this case, Judge. And a quick check with the Los Angeles traffic officer proves conclusively that the Howard on the traffic ticket and the Howard to tell knows are one and the same man. With this knowledge, Trussell hurries back to Culver City and informs Lynch of his discovery. Then the two officers settle down to await the arrival of Nuremberg and the start of their identification experiment. And at 10 the next morning, after a ceaseless night, they reach the fingerprint expert and hurry to the morgue. How are you going about this thing, Nuremberg? Well, the first thing we've got to do is strip the skin from the fingertips. And we've got to be careful doing it, too. That's the first place we can go wrong. What do we do with it when we get it? Soak it in alcohol for three days. That should restore it to a fair degree of normality, at least enough to powder. Then, if everything goes well, we photograph the results and get a set of fingerprints. Of course, the odds are that we won't get anything, but there's that one chance. I've got a hunch it'll work, Nuremberg. A strong hunch. And so far, my hunches have been 100% right. Come on, let's get started. the morning, Nuremberg works like some skilled surgeon, carefully removing the tarred skin from the fish fingertips, delicately placing them in a container of alcohol to soak. It is a nerve-stretching task, and when, toward the afternoon, Edward straightens up from his work, pronounces the first step of the experiment finished, both through Shell and Lynch, with a long, suppressed sigh of relief. So far, so good. And now, with three long days to wait, Lynch and Shell pick up the former thread of evidence. Start a man hunt for the man behind the sill, Harry A. Howard. But first, they make another search of the burned hill. Discover a metal waste paper container buried under a pile of tarred embers. In it, they find several scraps of torn paper. That's only one of some love letters or something. Yeah, only these scraps aren't letters. Look more like receipts. Look more like receipts. Look more like receipts. Look more like receipts. We're on the right track. Now all we've got to do is to find Howard and pin it on him. He won't have a leg to stand on. But finding the ex-bootlegger, Harry Howard, isn't as easy as it seems. For two days, the men tracked down all his known haunts to find the same answer. Howard has not been seen for some time. Several friends of his have brought in questions, but each one denies any knowledge of Howard's whereabouts. 
And by the morning of the third day, Lynch and Tuchel begin to realize that things are not just what they might be. And now the search for Howard is put aside for the continuation of Durenberg's experiment. In his laboratory in Los Angeles, Lynch and Tuchel watch anxiously as the scientist begins the second step, that of powdering the now thoroughly soaked fingertips. You see here how the skin has turned white, resumed its appearance of human skin rather than parchment. Yeah, you can tell what it is, all right. Now, the next thing is to make the tiny indentations or lines stand out. You see, unlike the usual method of fingerprinting, that is, rolling the fingers in ink and then getting an impression from pressure on a pad, we've got to photograph these tiny pieces. Naturally, the way they are, there's no contrast. Everything looks white. So we take this dark powder preparation, so, and dust it into the crevices. Then we blow off the excess. And there you see a perfect fingertip. By George Nuremberg, you've got something here. I hope so. Well, what now? Photograph? That's right. This lens is specially constructed to take sharp close-up pictures of small objects. Now, I'm going to set this glove-like fingertip on the end of this pencil. So, you set it up here with this light on it. Like this. You mean you're going to have to set each one up like that and take a picture? That's right. Slow, but if it works, sure. Francisco, 
April 16, 1919. Discharge May 1920 for dance conduct. Home address given at 3420 San Jose Avenue, Alameda, California. Respectfully, George A. Holmes, commander in charge of Naval Personnel, Washington, D.C. In response to a telegram, Duane, alias Curtis's father, makes the trip down from Alameda, identifies his son's remains, and puts an end once and for all to all speculations as to his identity. And Lynch and Truchelle begin a minute search for the missing Howard. But this time as before, their efforts are blocked at every turn. No one knows where Howard is. No one knows anything about his connection with the burned still. No one apparently knows anything, and at last, after two months of constant seeking, the officers conclude that their man has left town for good. Relax in their search. Then one day, Lynch receives a call from a constable he knows, a call asking his assistant in staking out a house in the West Adams district in order to catch a man wanted on a theft charge. Accordingly, Lynch drives over and meets the constable. Casually, he looks over the arrest warrant, then suddenly stiffens to attention. Hey, is this the fellow you're going after? Yeah, why? Harry Albert. Harry Howard's brother-in-law. Yeah, who's Harry Howard? A gent Trushell and I have been looking for for months. He's the lad behind one of the biggest steel outfits in town. I've got a warrant for his arrest right in my pocket. Been carrying it there just in case I happen to run into him sometime. Hey, uh, what's this Albert got to do with him? He's mixed up with him and a couple of bootlegging raps we never hired on. Claims to be his brother-in-law. Nice family. Albert's at one for all except in Los Angeles. Well, yeah, let's get back to this house. I'd like to give it the one so and see if I can get a lead as to where Howard is. That's one person I'm anxious to get my hands on. Uh, probably won't find anything. People like this aren't apt to leave their calling cards lying around. However, I still want Albert, so let's go. <laughs> Once at the house, Constable Jennings and Lynch, finding no one home, make a quick search. Find in a drawer in the bedroom something that pleases Lynch immensely. This has got it. Just the thing I've been looking for. Well, what's that? This letter here from Harry Howard with a return address in Ontario, California. <laughs> and I thought he was smart. Come on, Jennings, we're going to take a fast tour to Ontario. What, now? You bet your life now. I'm not wasting any time. Two months I've spent looking in every alley, hot shop, pool hole, and bootlegging joint. And now it looks as though maybe I've found him. Come on, next stop, Ontario. Not wanting to waste the time necessary to return to Culver City and locate Trussell, Lynch and his companion, Constable Jennings, start a mad drive to the foothill town of Ontario. Mile after mile, they drive at breakneck speed, and inside of 30 minutes, they pull to a grinding stop in front of the Ontario police station. A brief stop there, long enough to enlist the aid of a local officer... And they resume the journey. This time, stopping down the street from a small white house, bearing the address found on the letter. Quietly, Lynch makes the plan. Issues instructions. Now, there's no way of telling how many we're going to find in there. But the way I've got to figure, if we surprise them, we'll have a good chance of grabbing them before they know what's happening. It sounds logical, no? Jennings, suppose you take the west side of the house. Right. You the back door. I'll go in the front way. Right. You hear me inside? You come in through the back door fast. They start out first, nail them. Don't let anyone get away until we know who we have. Understand? Perfect. Okay, and be careful. I don't know much about this, Harry Lab. I understand he carries a gun, and he isn't particular who he uses it on. Keep that in mind. Yeah, don't worry. I'm not anxious to get through with lead. Okay, then. Let's go. Slowly, quietly, the three men approach the little white house. Wordlessly, 
standing with all in readiness, Lynch eases up the front steps onto the porch. Quietly tries the door, finds it locked. A moment's hesitation, then his mind made up. Lieutenant Lynch goes into 215 pound action.
is your narrator, Ted Whitman's Lee, bidding you good night for Rio Grande. Oh.